The following is a production of Art Trap Productions, brought to you by the Gallifreyan Embassy and has been made possible by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This episode brought to you by Pachak Supporting Subscribers. Go to arttrap.com slash Pachak Supporter to become a supporting subscriber. Support the show and get extra content and other bonuses. This episode also brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download at audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap. Over 75,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. This episode also supported by the Podshock Podcast Companion app for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch, now available in the iTunes App Store. Live from a shuttle bus from LAX to the Marriott Hotel, it's Doctor Who Podshock! Doctor Who Podshock. Okay, well, let's do it. No, I... <laughs> you know, whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> <laughs> For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction television program with Louis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep. Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh, no. And fan mail for James. Uh, over 40,000. Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifrey Embassy. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh, yeah, we blew that. <laughs> I'm the Doctor, and who are you? And who are you? The Gallifrey Embassy presents Doctor Who Pachak, episode 237. Hello, this is Louis Trapani, and hello, how are you? Ken Deep will be joining us shortly, and James Norton is not available for this episode, but he'll be back in episode 238, joining me for another special episode of Doctor Who Pachak. But first, before we could get to 238, we're going to get through 237. And that's this episode of Doctor Who Pachuk, which we have with us Graham Burke and Robert Smith of the book series Time Unincorporated. Plus, we continue our Gallifrey One preview and we have a special guest from Gallifrey One itself. Sean Lyon joins us to continue our preview of Gallifrey One's Catch-22 Islands of Mystery. As a reminder, we will be there covering the convention, plus we'll have a meet and greet on Thursday evening before the convention officially begins at 10 p.m. Plus on Sunday at 2 p.m., we are once again taking the stage for a live recording of Doctor Who Pachak with lots of special guests, plus two surprise guests. For more information, go to our website, pachak.net or gallifrenemacy.org for more information on our live show. You won't want to miss it. The two special guests are not convention guests there. They're special guests that we're bringing to the conventions. So if you miss our show, you'll miss those guests. And if you can't make it to Gallifrey One this year, fear not, we'll bring the convention to you through our coverage and make you feel like you're there via our podcast, following us on Twitter, via our website, podshock.net. Keep checking our site, keep checking the Twitter feed, and of course, keep checking for upcoming podcasts. And we'll be covering Doctor Who content as well. So it's not just the convention itself we're covering. We're covering news and happenings of relating to Doctor Who there as well. Interviews from the guests there. So even if you have no interest in the convention itself, there's lots of Doctor Who content going on at the convention. And we're going to be bringing it to you. But while I'm on the topic of Gallifrey 1, Dave Cooper, a.k.a. Dave A.C., who is not only a Doctor Who Pachak correspondent, he's a Doctor Who Pachak supporter as well. 
had this message for us. Hi, Lewis, Ken and James and the Podshock listeners. This is Dave AC, who occasionally helps out on Podshock and indeed on the Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi. Not feedback from me, but just my good wishes from the Colton Collective, that's myself, Dave AC and Ian the Sixth Doctor and the rest of the Collective for your trip to Galley 22. Both Ian and myself are so envious that you're going this year and we wish you every success We know you're going to fill that great room with all your fans. Hope you have a really great weekend there. He and himself will be just hanging on every word you say and wishing we were there with you. So all the best. And now back to Lewis, Ken and James. Well, thank you, Dave. And thank you, Ian. We wish both of you were attending Gallifrey One this year. Perhaps one year we'll have you both at the convention at the same time with us. That would be really great. It would be fantastic. Maybe we'd have Graham Sheridan there too, if possible. Both Graham and Dave helped out on Doctor Who Podshock and Hitchhiker's Guide to British Sci-Fi recently, co-hosting with me. So we had gotten some great feedback on that point. So we do appreciate that, those that did send in the feedback. So hopefully we can have them both on together again in future episodes when needed. And speaking of Graham, he has a blog that he maintains on our site, podshock.net or gallifrandembassy.org. And his latest entry has to do with David Williams joining the next series of Doctor Who. Now, David Williams is known for his character comedies. You may know him from the popular comedy series Little Britain, and more recently from Come Fly With Me. He's done a lot with his comedy partner, Matt Lucas. But you may also remember him from a series of Doctor Who sketches, which he did with Mark Gaddis in 1999 for Doctor Who Night. And if you haven't seen those really funny sketches, they're included in the Beginnings DVD box set. So that's uh, if you needed an excuse, like you, as if you needed an excuse to get that box set. Those videos are really required viewing for any longtime Doctor Who fan. Or even if you're new to Doctor Who. So David Williams announced on BBC Radio 2's Breakfast Show that he has a part in the upcoming series of Doctor Who. But all he's willing to reveal at this time is that he's an alien and that shooting starts soon. It'd be really cool if he and Mark Gaddis were both included in an episode together. Well, I don't know if Mark Gaddis can do it again. Well, he, he's, he can play another character just because he appeared once as, a diff- as one character. He can appear again as a different character, especially if it's an alien with makeup. He'll never know it's him. But we're very excited to see David Williams on the series. Something else to look forward to now. It's February now, so the new series is set to begin in spring of 2011. We don't have an exact date. Some people are picking a date in April, but no a date has been announced to my knowledge. So, well, let's hope it is in the beginning half of April. Or you never know what date it's going to be. We might as well just wait until there's a date to be announced before we start counting the days. February also marks our seasonal meetup on Second Life. So once again, Doctor Who Pachuk will be coming together for a meetup on Second Life. Now, this is not to be confused with our meetup in Los Angeles for Gallifrey One. This is happening the following week after that. Well, actually, a week and a half after our meetup. On the 27th, that's a Sunday of February, is uh, when we're planning our meetup on Second Life. There'll be information on our website soon. So now more than ever, if you can't get out to Gallifrey One, you have no excuses. If you have broadband internet and a fairly modern computer, you can join us at our meetup on Second Life. Now, of course, it's a completely different experience to our Meet Space meetup at Gallifrey One. So uh, don't, you know, you're welcome to attend both and we encourage you to attend both. 
And I promise that Ken Deep will be joining us on this podcast, and he will right after this in our next segment. So we'll be right back with our interview with Graham Burke and Robert Smith. This is Matt Smith, and you're listening to Doctor Who Podshock. With Gallifrey One's Catch-22, Islands of Mystery, just a little more than a week away, once again, we'll be bringing you our live show recorded on stage there, and we'll be bringing you extensive coverage of the annual convention, as we've been doing these past few years. But we need your help. You can help by becoming a Podshock Supporting Subscriber. Please, if you haven't already become a supporter of the show, please consider becoming one now. Now more than ever, we need your support. Not only will you be supporting this show and helping us return to Gallifrey One, the biggest Doctor Who North American convention, but you'll get extra content as well, such as Doctor Who Pachak Extra episodes. We have more of those coming your way, as well as other advantages that we offer. Just our way of saying thank you for your support. To learn how to become a supporting subscriber, simply go to podshock.net or arttrap.com and click on the banner up towards the top of the page in regards to becoming a supporting subscriber. A big thank you for all our supporters. We can't do this show without you. Your support does make a difference. And now Ken Deep joins me with Graham Burke and Robert Smith. So we're back on Dr. Pacha. Ken is with me and joining us is Graham Burke and Robert Smith. <laughs> Question mark. Yes. Who are the editors of the new book that's coming out, Time Incorporated 2, the Doctor Who fanzine archives. So welcome to the show, both of you. Yeah. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Yes, great to be here. So this book is um, will be coming out shortly. I know next, well, I was going to say. Uh, actually, actually, just to correct you, Louis. Um, the, first, the Timeline Incorporated 2 has been out for six months now. It's been out, it's been out, since, actually, it's been out since last April. Um, our next book, Timeline Incorporated Volume 3, is coming out in, in three months. Ah, I got you. So, yeah. This is a collection of, of fanzine articles and some things like that, some old and some new from the, from the gist of it, from what I can put together. And some well-known Doctor Who fans and it seems the theme of the book is um, fan scholars, people who who become writers, whether professionally or in a serious manner, who have written about Doctor Who. This is a sort of collection of some of the best in uh, in Doctor Who fandom. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in the in the late nineties, there was a collection of uh, mostly British uh, writing like this, um, and it was it was quite quite popular. Uh, it was really good, and it found its way into a lot of academic circles. And I think what we wanted to do was to sort of showcase some of the best writing that fandom has to offer. Um, and there's some great stuff out there. The problem is that fanzines sell to a very limited number of people, so not very many people have access to some of some of the gems that are existing out there. This is almost like a greatest hits album of fan writings There's, in many ways yes um, you've, you've yeah, picked I, them out you've picked yeah. out the best of the best 
that's what was really that was certainly what we we started out doing the book wanting to do. It, we it was a, Robert and I both felt very strongly that um, I, I for about a decade I edited uh, the Doctor Who Information Network's fanzine Enlightenment and. And I felt from that experience and from the experience of reading License Denied, the, the book that Robert described, that, that there's a real wealth of uh, articulate, smart Doctor Who fans who, who are, are exceptionally good critics, who are exceptionally good writers and write well about things. And we just wanted to put all the best of that writing into one place, uh, if possible. License Denied was Paul Cornell's book. That's right kind of going into a very similar thing. Was that something that inspired the Time Unincorporated series? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I remember reading it, and at the very end of the book, he says, you edit the next one. And I always sort of thought, <laughs> oh, that would be so nice. Somebody should really do that. And, and little did I realize that, that that was speaking to me directly. Um, and I think what one of when I pitched it to the publisher, what I really wanted to do was to tell the story of Doctor Who's return. And, and how that, that was reflected through the fanzines. And I think, I think we've done that, split over two volumes. One is sort of stuff before the new show, one is the stuff afterwards. And, of course, some of it dates back for decades, but I think, nevertheless, what you see is, is this evolution of writing. And in the 80s, what you saw was sort of people just reporting on the new show, or, you know, as it was then. And in the 90s, without a TV show, the quality of the writing goes up enormously because suddenly fans are left on their own and they're left they with... They had to analysis. invent things. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, and, and many of these uh, authors have went on to uh, become well-known in Doctor Who fan circles and both on a professional level with the show itself. Uh, you know, Ken mentioned Paul Carnell. There's Kate Orman. There's um, a whole host of different contributors that have now made their mark on the show itself and with uh, novels and, um, and, and, like I said, in Paul's case, writing for the show itself. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a. I think you can actually uh, plot a course pretty much from fanzines that sort of began just at the tail end of the McCoy era, sort of around '88, '89, um, and and that fan culture that sprang up through it, straight through to the new series. A lot of the new adventures authors were basically people who came out of that culture, like Paul and Andy Lane and others, but also and Kane Orman as well in Australia. But also, I think, you know, um, also that fan, same fan culture also had other offshoots like the audiovisuals with Gary Russell and Bill Banks. And, and so and, and all those sort of people, I think, made their way into 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 what we know as Doctor Who and contributed in some way. And I think what the great thing about Doctor Who is and Doctor Who's fan culture is, is that it's what I call an open source fandom. It's a show that talks about how it's made and is interested in how it's made. And what were the creative choices? What were the dramatic choices? What were the mm. what were the design choices? They don't talk about it just in terms of the fiction of the show. It's about, although they do that, but it's also about how it, what, what went into it. And I think that that raised the level of discourse in Doctor Who fandom in a way that I don't think you see in other fandoms. And I think we wanted to capture that because I you, think it's unique. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was having a discussion at dinner recently with some other Doctor Who fans uh, where we were discussing that, and, and I've never heard the term before, and I like, I like what you use by saying it's open source. What I described was that, you know, many times, in particular with American franchises, let's call it that, uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, things like that, Paramount owns Star Trek, George Lucas owns Star Wars, and so Doctor Who being out of a British public institution, the BBC, there was a little more of a chance 
for someone to to get involved in it from the outside. It wasn't one person, one dominant personality that held the reins on Doctor Who. It was open to different producers and different writers. And I think fans took fans in science fiction in particular always take ownership. There's always a sense that that when when you become a hardcore fan of something that you're part of it. I think I think part of it is, as you say, it's it's a show that's always been sort of created by committee and has always, you know, re, you know, replicated itself and people have replaced itself. So there isn't one sort of unilateral sort of uh, creative force, at least not in the in the case of the classic series. And I think what happened is is that I think um, I think it was encouraged. I mean, I think I think you can trace that all the way back to the making of Doctor Who, the book that Terence Dixon Malcolm Hulk wrote in 1972. It encouraged it encouraged fans to see the show as an actual product, as an actual thing that is made, an actual theatrical production, and to sort of sit, and to sort of want to know that. And I think that's why you have so many people now writing for the new show and producing for the new show and, and doing other things, because they grew up knowing that this is something that they could do later on. Can you point to another franchise or another show or thing that has the same ability? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think in my mind, has there ever been a show or, or comic or series of novels that said, when you grow up, we're going to hand this off to you? I think comic books have always been inimical to that. I think comic books has been made by fan culture pretty much since the 70s. You have writers like Steve Englehart and, and Marv Wolfman and, and Len Wein and, they, and, and Roy Thomas, and they all came from a fan culture of the 60s and, and so on and so forth. So comic books have always done that. So I think that's, but, but I think in terms of television, I think Robert probably maybe, maybe has a better idea than I do. Yeah, I, th I think one of the limits of television is it tends to be just one thing, and and so you do see you know people looking very deeply into Star Trek, and, and there's a lot of Star Trek, so you can look into the background. Um, you see people writing fan fiction, obviously of Star Trek, but other shows. For example, Millennium, which was a very you know very well made show that got cut a bit short in the '90s, um, had whole sort of seasons written sort of you know about it afterwards by the fans who were a bit upset that their show was cut short. So so you do see this sort of engagement with the text. I think it tends to start often as sort of fan fiction and then sometimes grows into sort of more more astute fan fiction, but then also becomes interested in what's happening behind the scenes. But I think really, as, as you say, the diversity of Doctor Who is really what powers it. That, you know, if if you like Bases Under Siege, then then that, that's great. That's there for you <laughs> for a while. And if you don't, well, it's not going to be around forever. And then there's, you know, Exile to Earth. And then there's sort of, you know, soap opera. Then there's whatever kind of thing that you like. Doctor Who's probably doing it or has done it at some point. So you, different people can latch onto different things and then they take ownership, not necessarily of the whole show, but of bits of the show that they like. Um, mm. And this, I think, it produces a very sort of, you know, like as Graham says, an open source fandom because it's it's not just one thing. It's not just one vision. It's not just one sort of topic. It, it, it's all these things at once. And so people can sort of endlessly debate it. I mean, I, I've described Doctor Who as being like the weather. It's it's always changing. It's endlessly discussable. It's it's sort of surrounding us if you want it to be. Um, and and I think that really gives it a strength. Yeah, and your book is not a, just to, to be clear, it's, it's not a collection of fan fiction. It's more essays that are uh, collected throughout uh, the years of fandom. And they tell, collectively, they tell a whole story about Doctor Who, but they're made up in small chapters that you can just pick and choose from. You know, you don't have to read it chronologically, but you can if you like, because it does paint a whole picture with, the, you know, with the collection itself coming together. 
Yeah, we were we, Robert and I were very very much influenced by License Denied in that it, uh, we wanted to do um, something that sort of ha that where all the work was more collected thematically. So we have you know we have a section that's about Pertwee and to a certain extent tr charts the sort of attitudes towards John Pertwee's Doctor that happened in fandom in the '90s and the 2000s. We have a we have a chapter on. Uh, morality and contemporary issues in Who. We have, an, we have a chapter about the 80s version of Doctor Who. Um, we have, um, and in the new series book, it, you know, we have a chapter about the spin-offs. We have a chapter about, we have a chapter about Russell T. Davies's influence on Who and and the 2005 season and the David Tennant years and, and such. So you know, it, it, so it makes it it makes it a much sort of. And, but the result is is that there's such diversity even within those containers. Um, mm -hmm. So you have, you know, so you'll have someone who can't stand the Pertwee and takes the Mickey out of it relentlessly. Mm -hmm. But you also have someone who is incredibly affectionate about Day of the Daleks. And there's that sort of diversity that's within that. Yeah, which is great, and because uh, you get different sorts of opinions, and, and and as you said, it just adds to the diversity of it. Uh, I know, Graham. I read a piece that you had contributed in this book. It was uh, from Enlightenment about the John Nathan Turner years, the rise and fall and decline of John Nathan Turner, and I think it paints a pretty accurate picture of what he was going through as a producer, and uh, it, it may shed some light on, you know, some of the situations going on at that time. I know in that piece, which you had written back in 2002, just I think it was just after he had passed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In that, you didn't go so much into what he was dealing with with the BBC, but more focused on just him in that role. And, uh, and it's, it's stuff like that that really that enriches this type of collection because um, whereas um, you, know, you can find another piece that may go into another area of that era, yeah. And, and many times things that are official, you know, when you have a, a licensed piece of merchandise like the uh, uh, a magazine or, or a book that that has to pass through, let's say, the BBC hands because it's branded Doctor Who. I'm sure there's a tendency for to to tread a little more carefully where uh, being a, f a collection of fan fiction, you can be brutally honest about things pr provided your facts are straight. If yeah. you find that to be the case in in a, in a situation, let's say, like analyzing John Nathan Turner. Well, I think, I mean, I think you don't want to go so far as to do something as legally actionable. But, you know, I think within those parameters, yeah, I, I do think there's there's some there is some freedom. I mean, that that John Nathan Turner piece, the idea of it was just simply to sort of uh, talk about. JNT's influence on Who by looking at the beginning, middle, and end of his career in Who. So I, I think I used uh, Leisure Hive One, Two Doctors, Two Episode yes. Two, and, yeah. and and Ghostlight Three as as sort of the as sort of the, the, the talking about what wh what he had done. Um, and I think I mean I think in the, that case, yeah, I, I certainly did have probably a little more freedom than say the Doctor Who magazine piece that uh, was actually very very well done. Um, I remember at the time, um, but you know, but at the same time, I mean, there's you know, there's certain things that I, I probably was more able to say. I mean, I mean, I remember one of the things I one of the points I made in that piece was uh, I picked up on something that that Peter Davison said that he that he felt that Colin Baker was a Truffaut-esque. Uh, Truffaut-esque uh, piece of casting, and Francois Truffaut was a was a was a f French film director, and I happen mm -hmm. to be a fan of his, and and so I was able to notice that, that uh, how true that was, because really Truffaut often 
put himself in his own films or he casts people who has sort of neutral acting style like his own in his in his movies. And so Colin Baker is that sort of way. I mean, he he had that sort of kind of outrageous way of dress. He had that sort of um, sort of, you know, um, pomp and wit and the sort of things that that John Nathan Turner's convention persona was exactly like. And so I don't think you could probably have said that in an official publication. You know, I don't think it's actually particularly critical or but I think it's just stating something but I think at the same time it's something that yeah you have a little more freedom in a non-licensed publication to say yeah I think that like the dots were there but you were able to take them and kind of connect the dots that were made it very interesting what was you've managed to come up with and now a, a third volume on deck what was the things that are surprising you about this like you you you're finding enough material enough strong material out there to have multiple volumes, what is it that's um, catching you off guard? What is it that's surprising you and shocking you and saying, we've got to put this out there? I, th- I think one of the things that we we hit with the new series volume was that there, there weren't a lot of fanzines around anymore. Um, a lot of the discussion had moved to online stuff, which, which we also did use. But some of it got defrayed a bit because now with online, people are not going into as as in-depth analysis um, much mm-hmm. of the time. So we commissioned a lot of articles for that. And I think we were hoping that there would be more sort of fanzines maybe hidden around that we might find. There weren't as many for the new series. But on the flip side, we actually, of course, were able to get a lot of people on board who were interested in writing their own brand new analyses for the book, uh, which I think makes it quite, quite strong. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, very cutting edge. We got a lot of stuff on the Matt Smith season, which obviously it was going to press basically just as that had come out. And so there weren't fanzines talking about that very much. I think maybe what was surprising was sort of looking through the the fanzines of the 80s and realizing that that it was almost like a wasted opportunity. Like they they had a show on TV, you know, which the 90s just didn't have, and yet they weren't very interested in analyzing that show. They were interested just in reporting. And so you see a lot of journalistic style stuff. You see Mm -hmm. reports on, you know, there's a new story. It's called Battlefield. It'll feature the Brigadier. And that's what they're interested in is sort of just reacting directly to what's happening on the TV show. And then when you see the flip to the 90s and, and the early 2000s, it's suddenly fandom seems to grow up. And that, that shift is, is really rapid and it's really strong. And the quality of the writing just, just jumps in, enormously. And I think that was actually a very pleasant surprise. I thought there might be a bit more stuff in the 80s, but we didn't really seem to find too much. Do, do you think I that's think a product of the age of the people that were active in fandom at the time? In other words, do, do, did we... Do you find collectively that our ages are about the same as Doctor Who fans? And then there's a certain point where perhaps uh, you've come out of college or you've settled into a, a more mature analysis of the things you like. I think it's that, but I think it's also another thing. I think that I think that the purpose of fanzines have had an evolutionary shift. I think, and I think there's a lot of fanzines out right now, and there, and there's a lot of really good ones actually. Uh, there's one there's one I'm particular fan of called Panic Moon, which is which is absolutely superb. It's it's produced by some really really uh, uh, enthusiastic fans, and and I and, and I think their material is great. Uh, we couldn't really use anything from it because because a lot of it was just very short form stuff. But those fanzines are doing. A a lot of what it was being done in the 80s. They're, they're using, they were, fanzines were a mode of forming community for fans. Um, in the same way, in the same way that podcasts do, in the same way that internet forums do now, fanzines were a place where just fans could sort of say, hi, hey, how you doing? You know, isn't it great, Doctor Who? And, and so it was a different place. It wasn't meant to be, and I think what happened, I think there is a certain degree of fandom growing up, as you say, but I think also 
the need for what people wanted out of a fanzine changed. I think people suddenly said, this is a place where we can be creative. This is a place where we can sort of express and investigate our interest in this in this hobby. And I think that changed. And I think I think to a certain extent, there has been a, re a, a nice resurgence of fanzines now, but I think they're going back to more what it was for originally, which was a, to sort of a, a, fa a fanish place for community. And I think that's great. I think it's, there's different horses for horses, really. And I think another contributing factor to that is that when you do have a series that it's current, like in the 80s, you sort of, to some degree, take it for granted. In the 80s, we saw Doctor Who, uh, in, especially here in North America, rise in uh, popularity, and there were Doctor Who conventions, and you kind of just take it for granted of that, okay, we'll have new episodes coming out, and, mm -hmm. you know, this whole, then there was this 16- or 18-month hiatus, whatever, but then it came back, and what, what I'm getting at is that once it was gone, then us fans kind of had nothing to go on except for maybe going back and analyzing what we've seen already. So maybe at the it, time we didn't, but now we can be more self-reflective and, and go it, back. It, and all, it also seems that once you, ha once you had the opportunity, we shouldn't say had the opportunity, once there was no more news, once news stopped, mm -hmm. I think fanzines and, and the writers and contributors to fanzines that still wanted to continue to publish, they had this thing they built up, they suddenly had to change because you weren't getting any news. And if what you were getting were, were drops of news, so now the time, the, the ability to, to present this analysis uh, surfaced. You know, we said, well, we can't, we don't have any news to report. Why don't we take uh, Pyramids of Mars and, and deconstruct it? Somewhat. I, 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 when I started uh, editing Enlightenment, I, I started it in 2000, and uh, and I did it until just last uh, last January. And and at the time I started it, I, I said I, I honestly thought to myself, um, how am I going to fill how am I going to fill you know 20 pages? At the time, it was only 20 pages. It's since expanded, and and, and I thought. And, and and I I immediately went to Robert because Robert was one of the smartest Doctor Who fans I know, and so I asked if I asked if he would become a columnist, and I asked others. Uh, I asked my I asked my best friend Scott Clark to do it too, and my thinking was is that you know what, there is so much to talk about this show. The great thing about this show is it has a 26 year history. It has it has you know about 18 sub shows within the show itself. Mm -hmm. You know it has so many different different focuses. It has so many different ways of doing things. There's so much to talk about, and there, and there's so many people who are so enthusiastic about this show. There should be a a fanzine should be a place for people to actually come and 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 reignite their passion for the show. And, and the amazing thing about Enlightenment during the five years before the new show started, when I was editing it, was that we would be at a, a convention called Toronto Trek in Toronto, um, which is in, in July, and and it was it was a just a general SF con, and and we would sit there with our table for Dwin, and we would be pushing this thing and it, for a dead show, and we would be getting as much of a response as the people for what we called the Fargate people, you know, the people of the Farscape clubs and the and the and the Stargate clubs and stuff like that, you know, you know because because we because we had such passion for it, and there's all and there was all sorts of people who came to us and read Enlightenment and reignited their passion for the fans and for for the show because they suddenly realized that there was a place to talk about the things that they were interested in. 
Yeah, butcher. even in the in the wilderness years, the Gallifrey Embassy, our New York based club would have a table at our local convention and even if it was just to sell some things and just basically give us a place to meet at the convention there were still people who would come up to the table and still felt very passionate about about the show even though there wasn't anything new or 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 hadn't we didn't get to that point yet even with big finish let's say or some of the things that some of the, the licenses that were purchased right before the show show began again why are people so loyal? Why are you and me and Lewis and the rest of us, why are we so loyal to Doctor Who? Yeah, I, th- I think fans sometimes get this reputation as being very passive observers, and sometimes that's true. We enjoy the TV show, and you know we, we like to receive that, but I think there's also a very active fan. And what's actually very interesting, I think, is that that hasn't stopped once the TV show came back, that it's not like, oh, we all just went back to our couches and watch the show now you know the fan fiction is is enormously prevalent um you, you've got a lot of people who are very engaged a lot of very young people too um who are you know into the show and and you know writing about it talking about it and so on um and and i think that's great i think that's really a, a sign that the show can really inspire people to sort of find creativity within them whether that's writing fictional or, or non-fiction as, as we're more interested in um and um, I, I think sort of fanzines are bringing that there, but I think online you do see a lot. Um, I, I run a website, uh, which is the, the remit has, has always been, you know, sort of this is the voice of fandom. So it's it's the Doctor Who ratings guide, and the, and the tagline is by fans for fans. And so anyone who wants to write a review of a story can just send something in. And so I'd been doing that for sort of ten years, and mm. it, it's really amazing seeing the sort of you know breadth of passion that's out there. And and some people just like to say, oh, I love Pyramids of Mars, and and that's sort of you know the the extent of what they want to say. Other people will write five thousand words deconstructing sort of you know like where Davros fits and in, in the timeline and so on. Um, <laughs> and and so you see that that range happening. And and that that was true all through the wilderness years. And I think perhaps a little bit more then. There's a little bit of a drop off. The new series maybe isn't quite as written about. It's more enjoyed. I think. Um, yeah, that that actually. Yeah was leading into my next question which was are you finding that there's a new generation has the has are the new fans the people that have picked up the show since 2005 the next wave of doctor who fans are you finding a a, a wave of young writers stepping up now oh absolutely i think to a certain extent where they want where they're putting their passion and where they're writing is is in different places it's it's on places like Gallifrey base it's all you know it's it's on it's in online forums and it's on blogs and it's on live journal um, as opposed to fanzines mostly. Um, Do you think that's just a product of the time? I think it's a product of the time, absolutely. But I think, but I, but I do know we do know that there is that sort of articulacy and there's a lot of young fans who have got a lot to say. Um, Robert and I were both at the Polaris Convention in Toronto this summer, um, and and we sat we sat on panels where I think Robert and I were pretty much the oldest people there, and they were they were mostly people pretty much I think as old as 25. You know, I think that they were the old timers, um, and it was it was really quite invigorating and and. To see that sort of passion and that sort of excitement about about the show, and 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 to recall, you know, what what is like for us when we were that age. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, when you see that at, at all conventions that there seems to be a different age groups there. You have the the younger viewers, and they're they're less familiar with what has come before them. But uh, you know, as long as they're, they're willing to kind of venture into you know the older stories and maybe it might stir up that curiosity and maybe they'll start digging and analyzing it more and there is there's a friend of mine who 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 periodically uh 
texts me with with and he's he's in his he's in his uh, very early twenties, if that. And 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 you know, he periodically texts me with with things like, you know, you have, can you recommend any Sylvester McCoy stories? Do you know any? What, what are a good? What's a good Trouton to watch? And you kind of go, okay, well, doing Cybermen, <laughs> sort of send them on. Um, survival, go ahead. And, and so yeah, no, they're they're engaged. I mean, I mean, I think Robert and I were both like. Marveled at the at the at the fact that you had all these fans who were like barely older than eighteen and they were wearing costumes for you know Colin Baker's Doctor and you know it was you're like going these 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 are from characters that were on before you were born um you know <laughs> it, it it was astounding to me I do I do think that they've got the wherewithal to to be um, the next generation of 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 fan writers um it's just a case uh, of of sort of uh, it, 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 to a certain extent, I think I think it's only just um, it's just finding them because yeah, I think yeah. I think they're in I think they're in various different internet ghettos and and I do think you know I I do think that you know books like ours I think are a way of saying you know there's more to just you know Doctor Who writing than just recapping the last episode that you can actually talk articulately about what it is that that you like about it and and the fascinating thing to me about uh, when I when we go to these conventions is that is that people seem to just like hearing Robert and I talk because you know I think we sort of say hey look you know isn't this great isn't this neat you know there's and look at listen to all these ways that there is and I think and I, and I think that sort of encourages them to go just beyond uttering the catchphrases of, you know, fezzes are cool or whatever. Well, I, I think your book is great because it's a great vehicle to do that sort of thing, to take, as fans, can myself and any other fan, we can only digest so much, you know, uh, information as possible, what's out there. You know, even even if you're a member of two or three clubs, you get their fanzines or newsletters, you can, you can read them, but there's a whole host of other fanzines and newsletters out there that you may not be exposed to. So you're taking these and and taking the best of it really and putting them together and um like for example your article about that i mentioned earlier about jnt from enlightenment 2002 i didn't see that originally until now i was able to read it and so it brings a new life and gives new exposure to even diehard fans like myself that are you know we can only digest so much I, at once i i have to to second that as well i love that i i feel very strongly about fanzines and I and and also about what you're doing because you're bringing together the best the, the cream of the crop so to speak but putting it in print there's something to be said about the actual physical text the online community is wonderful and it's instantaneous and there's a lot going on and, and communication around the world being instantaneous is wonderful but there's also something to be said about editorial decisions and then the actual physical publishing of articles because as Lewis just mentioned he now has the ability to go and you have something that you've chronicled about John Nathan Turner and someone can sit and research and if they if if researching John Nathan Turner is their passion they will go and seek out things that are published as opposed to just googling his name and, and seeing the first thing that pops up on Wikipedia or something like that. And here you are offering a critical analysis. I think it's very important to have the stories and, and whether it be fiction or nonfiction, things within fandom be published. 
I think it's something. There's something to be said for it. Something to be said for the physical copy. Yeah, and well, not only that, but they've also taken them and together by ensembling them together. It, as it, we said at the top of this interview, it, it tells a complete story. It tells a whole story, but it's done in small segments so that it's not like you're when you you're faced with a huge book and like, oh well, I got to read this from cover to cover. You could skip around if you like, or you could just read it as presented, and it, and it kind of paints a, a a complete picture. A question for each of you with volume two that's that is already out do you have a particular thing that you really liked in it what's your favorite part do you have a particular essay that really struck a chord with you yes yeah, so i think my my favorite probably is um frontier in space planet of the daleks viewing of the two, uh, they call the two four which is um they sit there with a you know a bunch of alcohol a bunch of fans getting drunk watching the show <laughs> making comments and somebody writing down the comments and i i think i i didn't stop giggling every single time i was editing through that and i probably <laughs> read through it maybe five times every time i laughed um I, one thing i think that's very underrated is is sort of fans irreverence um mm. You know, you can have a love of the show, but you can also enjoy sometimes its flaws and sometimes where, you know, there's just comedy to be found. And I think that's fantastic. And sometimes, you know, we, we forget that that's part of fandom, too, um, mm. that, that you can really be irreverent without being cruel. And and I think that's that's fantastic. So for me, that was one of my favorites. I just I thought that was, you know, ev- every line in there is a killer. I think there's this, you know, comedy from beginning to end. For me, uh, there's like my children. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard, it's hard to. It's, 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 I, I mean, I mean, I, a lot of them are really great. The one that always sort of that I really that just that I, one I really like is um, one written by a, a writer named Ari Lipsy. Uh, and very late in the in the stage where we were editing the book, um, our publisher Lars Pearson at Madden Norwegian Press said to us. Your section on the 80s is really good, but it really needs something uh, about season 18. And I said, okay, uh, so we need to have someone write something about season 18 in a week. I think Ari mentioned this at the Toronto Tavern that we hold something about season 18. Let me email him and see if he wants to do something. And 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 Ari, Ari said, yeah, sure, I'll do something. And, and it turned out to be one of my favorite essays in the book just because it was so smart. He talks about the paradigm shift that happens in television in the 1980s and he sort of said and he sort of says how doctor who sort of changed within that but how really to a certain extent at that point tom baker and lala ward were surplus to requirements in the midst of it and it was just really smart the way he mm. he, he wrote about it i, I really I really captured my imagination and went wow that's really great um so that, that's one of my favorites um and, 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 and the fact that he did it under the gun too yeah he did it under the gun and and he also did it in a he did he had a funny opening opening paragraph where he talks about how you know there was weekend and you being in new york uh, you, you'll you'll know this i mean you know for him there was weekday doctor who and weekend doctor who because wned in buffalo showed doctor who on weekdays at six and it was always the pertwee and tom baker episodes and then there was weekend doctor who which is the Davison movies, and for him, he preferred the David Weekend Doctor Who with the with the with the you know neon tube and the and the and the starfields and all that <laughs> stuff, and as opposed to the more brown you know uh, co- colored uh, uh, weekday Doctor Who, and I thought it was a really funny funny way of phrasing it, but actually quite true, and actually kind of sort of connected to my own experiences growing up in the same same area as he did. And yeah, I, I love the two four as well, and uh, and uh, and Scott Clark wrote uh, the series of interludes that are in the book. We have six interludes, which we call A Key to a Time Lord, which is a series of essays on different aspects of Doctor Who that make Doctor Who great. And he talks about how 
the the opening episode beginnings are important for Doctor Who and how morality is uh, important and horror and humor and and each each one is just a short little thousand twelve hundred word essay about about what how those aspects sort of play out in Doctor Who and it's really quite stunning and and I and I remember when I when Robert and I were talking about putting together this book for me it was like it was a no brainer this these six pieces were going to have to go in the book. Hmm. Can you give us a preview of what we can expect from volume three? Is it, does it, is it a natural f- progression from volume two to volume three? Or is, uh, did you approach it more as a fresh start and just see, well, what's coming our way? I, I think thematically it's, it's a very natural progression. That we, that we have people interested in some of the same things. There are people interested in the, the politics around Doctor Who, and sort of, you know, like where it intersects with the real world. There are people interested in you know, the, the Ninth Doctor. There are people interested in the Tenth Doctor, people interested in the Eleventh. Just the sort of things that you saw in, in the previous volume. And I think there, some of it was sort of what, what's out there, but I think surprisingly a lot of it seemed to fit very, very naturally. I think sort of pretty much everything really hits it out of the park in, in volume three. I think that there was suddenly a lot to say, and I think perhaps we sort of hit it just the right time where the show had been on for you know six years, and suddenly people had amassed enough of it to sort of say, you know what, there are really, really important things to say, and I really passionately want to say this, and and so we we were really lucky actually. I think that we got a lot of that captured in the book. Did you find oh, absolutely? It is very much a progression, I think, um, and 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 to a certain extent, we mirror um, several of the sections and several of the concerns of the sections. So you know, there 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 is a section about. Um, we have a section in both books about contemporary issues in Doctor Who and how how they're reflected. And so, this volume ha- this volume sort of does it in a different way than than Volume Two. We had essays about Talons of Wenchang and racism. We had essays about um, we had essays about queer themes in, in Doctor Who and other things. And this volume, we also have similar essays, but we also have essay, uh, essays that take a different slant. And I think that's very, I think that's very true. The, the sections of, and, and as Robert says, I mean, there, there are sections that when you actually finally put it together, you went, wow, this, this has got a lot of breadth. And I was really quite, I was really quite surprised by it in many ways. Um, the, we have a section about David Tennant and, and there's some really lovely pieces in it that I think, uh, that I think reflect a whole breadth of opinion on on that on that time in Doctor Who. So I, I think I think I think it's gonna be quite exciting. Um, we also have a section on the spin-offs and, and we have some real breadth of opinion where you have people virulently defending season one of Torchwood and you have people basically raising it to the ground. Um, it has a real kind of that real kind of fan passion to it, which is what we wanted to do. Yeah, and, and also a section on shipping, which which wasn't really there in the past, although we do, we oh, do yeah. have one essay that's related. And I think that was where we really got some really exciting new voices from, from a younger crowd, um, because they're talking about their concerns, which are about uh, a lot more about relationships now, which wasn't something so prevalent in, the, in you know, older Doctor Who. Mm, you could leave that chapter right out of the classic series. But with someone. With two chapters uh, before this, did you find that with the, oh, I should say two volumes, rather, before this, did you find that with volume three you had people coming to you after discovering the first two, saying, listen, I, I wrote this piece, would you consider it for your next book? Or did you have people saying, I would like to write something just for your book or essay for your book? Well, we, we sort of commissioned all that stuff at once. We have sort of since had some people come to us and talk about it. Um, I think there was a little bit bit of influence on that, but mostly we, we did it all in one go. Um, just for budgeting reasons, it was much easier to, to I see. think of it all as one huge thing and split it accordingly. Will there be a volume one- four? 
Um, volume four, I, yeah, we commissioned it with it too. I mean, that's currently sort of in limbo because uh, Mad Norwegian decided that it's only going to publish uh, chapter th volume three. So we need to, so we're currently looking at other options for volume four um, with other publishers, and we're hoping that we can have something to announce soon. But yeah, we've, we certainly, we, we initially planned this as a, as a, as a, one volume thing and all of a sudden we said well this is too much stuff so let's do two and then all of a sudden partway through the making of that we were told that uh just to make it economical for the books so that you know that we that it should be split, split into three so um so and that was that was fortuitous because we were able to sort of take as our metaphor the popular one from Doctor Who backwards in time forwards in time and sideways in time and so we were able to say okay we'll do one volume of the classic series one volume of the new series and one volume just about the universe of Doctor Who which is you know whatever else that isn't in those two first containers so it doesn't so, so, so but we've more or less commissioned it as sort of as sort of all at once and, and to a certain extent things Things happen and things changed. I mean, like like I said, we we suddenly commissioned an eighteen uh, season eighteen essay all out of the blue, and and in the making of the book of of volume three, we suddenly said, well, we need to have more about the Matt Smith season because you know, originally we were going to publish it just before that season came out, and then it was going to be published in December of last year, and and so the publishing has kind of slid. Um, so we just so that meant more and more stuff needed to go in about what was the most current version of Doctor Who, and uh, I think Robert and I are both immensely uh, proud of the the, the Matt Smith uh, section. Actually, it, it, it has some real uh, it has some real uh, vibrancy and some real diversity to it. Yeah, I, I think it is one of the, the best collection of essays I've read sitting in one place. It's it's quite amazing. Yeah. And the first two volumes are available now, and the third one is coming out in May, I believe. That's right. Yes, that's right. And you'll be at Gallifrey in a couple of weeks to launch? I was just going to say, you guys are both going to be at Gallifrey with us. Yes. Uh, We're willing in the creek don't rise, <laughs> as, they, as, they, as they used to say. So, uh, so gentlemen, we want to thank you both for, for yes. joining us on, on Doctor Who Podshock and, and telling us a little bit about Time Unincorporated Volume 2, although there's Volume 3 on deck and there's a Volume 1 out there and from uh, Mad Norwegian Press. And is there a website that we can uh, we can shamelessly plug? Oh sure, uh, www.madnorwegian.com is 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 the website for the publisher. And uh, and I, as always, I must give a plug for the Doctor Who Information Network uh, because they have a published a fan, fine fanzine called Enlightenment, and that can be found at www.dwin.org. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for joining us. It was an enlightening experience. Yes, you're very welcome. <laughs> And we'll Thanks see you guys much. out in L.A. in a couple of weeks. Indeed. Excellent. Looking forward Bye. to it. All right. Cheers. Thanks. So will you be flying out to Los Angeles next week for Gallifrey 1's Catch-22 Islands of Mystery? If you are, what will you be listening to on the plane? Or perhaps you're driving there. I know several people are taking a long drive to California from other states. Well, no matter how you're getting to Gallifrey 1, most likely you'll have some traveling ahead of you. And one way to pass that travel time is by listening to audiobooks. Audible is the leading provider of digital audiobooks. They have over 75,000 titles to choose from in every genre, be it science fiction and fantasy, of course. They also have history, business, thrillers. And if you go to their site, check out their Doctor Who section. It's like their largest section, well, sections of science fiction franchises, I should say. There are more Doctor Who selections than Star Trek or Star Wars, so there's plenty to choose from if you're a Doctor Who fan. 
Audible content is compatible with iPods, iPads, iPhones, MP3 players, over 500 devices for your listening anytime, anywhere. And for you listeners of Doctor Who Podshock, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial to check out their service. To download your free audiobook, simply go to audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap, A-R-T-T-R-A-P, for your free audiobook. And as always, we like to make a suggestion of what you might like to perhaps pick as your free audiobook, or if you're already an Audible subscriber, you may want to pick this up anyway. Last time, we chose the War Games, which had... David Troughton narrating it. That's Patrick Troughton's son. And this time, we're going to go back even further than that. That was the second Doctor story. We're going to the first Doctor with the Edge of Destruction. Now, this was the first story, actually, that had the TARDIS as a character in the story, in a sense. It all started then, in the first series, with William Hartnell as the Doctor. This is written by Nigel Robinson and is narrated by William Russell, who played Ian Chestington, one of the first companions of the Doctor, including in this story, The Edge of Destruction. This is William Russell narrating the book here. It all started, they would say later, in a forgotten London junkyard on a foggy November night in 1963. But in truth, for Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright, it had started some five months earlier. It had all begun with 15-year-old Susan Foreman, who had just joined the school. From the start, Susan had proved something of a mystery. Despite five months' constant nagging from Miss Johnson, the school secretary, she was still unable to produce the birth certificate or, indeed, any other documentation to prove her status. Neither was her grandfather, with whom she lived on the electoral register of Coal Hill or any other London district. She had just returned from a long stay abroad, Susan explained, and the necessary papers were still in transit. Miss Johnson had thought of telephoning the girl's grandfather, but he was not listed in the phone directory. The two letters she wrote to him remained unanswered. Fortunately, Miss Johnson was a mild-mannered woman, not the normal stuff of school secretaries, and as the months passed, she began to despair of ever completing her file on Susan Foreman. Looking at Susan, Barbara Wright could believe that the girl had spent most of her life abroad. Her speech was clear and precise, as though English was not her mother tongue, or at least she was unused to speaking it. Occasionally, she would use a word or phrase in her conversation which, although not technically wrong, was unsuitable, just as if she had learnt English from a textbook. When she spoke, however, it was with a peculiar lilt which was not unattractive. She often seemed nervous in the presence of her fellow pupils, as if she was uncertain of their customs. And though she was a pleasant enough girl, she seemed to have few friends at school. Those pupils she did associate with appeared rather in awe of her. The one time Barbara had asked Susan about her background, the girl had just smiled sweetly and said, We travelled round quite a lot when I was a child. But Susan's large almond eyes, finely boned cheeks, and slightly oriental complexion suggested 
that she had some Asiatic blood in her. As history teacher, Barbara Wright had a special interest in Susan. Most of Barbara's pupils regarded history as a dull chore, especially when it was the last lesson on a Friday afternoon. But Susan greeted each lesson with genuine enthusiasm. She was passionately interested in every period of history, and at times displayed a knowledge of certain ages which astounded even Barbara. Barbara recognized in Susan a potential university candidate and offered to work with her at home. But Susan had firmly refused, giving as an excuse the fact that her grandfather did not welcome strangers. Ian Chesterton, the handsome young science master, had been having similar problems. Susan's marks for her written papers were consistently excellent, surprisingly so for a girl of her age. But in class, she seemed strangely detached. That was obviously him giving you some background information on Susan Foreman, the doctor's granddaughter that we first met in The Unearthly Child. Doesn't really give you much of the story of the Edge of Destruction, but it's still interesting. Nonetheless, I'm sure it probably is bringing readers or listeners, I should say, for the audiobook up to speed on where they are and how they got there. Now, despite the actual televised story being rather short, this runs three hours and 19 minutes. So obviously there's a lot more to this than what you saw on the televised version. And this could be your selection, or you could choose any that Audible has to offer. Once again, to get your free audiobook today, simply go to audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash arttrap for your free audiobook. And if you happen to be driving or traveling right now, if you, even if you're traveling to Gallifrey One right now, you can go to, and you can't write that URL down, just go to our website, podshock.net. That's easy to remember. And there are links there to this Audible offer. And we're back with Dr. Hugh Pachak, and joining us now, both Ken and I are delighted to have with us Mr. Sean Lyon from, well, I was going to almost said Outpost Gallifrey, but from Gallifrey <laughs> One Conventions. Yeah, going back in time there. How are you guys? <laughs> it's good to have you back on the show, Sean. It's always great to have you on the show because we have the inside guy right now. Well, I appreciate it. And I've been I've been wanting to do this for weeks, but you know, as I was telling Ken and Lewis before we started taping this, um, we had a, a really smooth sailing until about two weeks ago, and then the last two weeks has kind of been uh, topsy turvy. That's pretty typical, though. Would you say for a convention that with pro professional commitments seem to pop up right before yeah. the convention? Yeah, um, you know, the big thing was, as we're recording this, it's, it's Monday, and, and uh, the big thing we had today, of course, was having to announce that Sheridan Smith wasn't going to be with us, which is really disappointing, and, and she's actually very disappointing as well, but disappointed as well, but um, she basically took the lead in a new play and is going back, and we've had to explain to people, you know, I mean, work is more important than staying here and doing a convention in Los Angeles, you know, we understand that completely, but we've, we've, we've I think, gotten... Four guests over the last couple of no, we've gotten three new guests and lost four, which the, as the math works out, and it's only been in two weeks, and that's kind of unusual for us because usually by now everything's pretty set, but all because of professional commitments, all because of work commitments. But mm -hmm. you managed to, as an example, you lost two Torchwood guests, but replaced it with one Torchwood guest. You lost a Blake Seven guest and replaced it with a Blake Seven <laughs> yeah. guest, sort of, you know. Yeah. 
it, so it yeah, the, to work out. evening out yeah exactly the incredible seven day blake seven guest that we had absolutely um we were really excited to have jacqueline pearson of course devastated right after we actually got her booked and, and solid and everything that she couldn't make it but uh but yeah i mean it's great because we've never had gareth thomas um i don't think he's done a u.s convention in quite a while and it's really exciting and as when i was talking to 10th planet who are the people that are bringing him um i didn't realize until i was actually speaking with with Derek hambley who's the the organizer of 10th planet that gareth did a torchwood two years ago or three yeah. years ago yeah and i did a bunch of big that. finishes as well absolutely absolutely he was uh yeah he headlined their whole dalek empire series which i remembered but but i was kind of shocked so i was like oh cool we actually have another torchwood guest technically and another so, gareth what is this now your fourth gareth <laughs> third we have three, <laughs> oh, three. We, if we'd had gareth david lloyd we'd had four but no sorry that's not going to happen but we do because we have um gareth thomas we have gareth roberts and we have the location manager for the show, uh, the new series, Gareth Skelding, who's going to be there Saturday, Sunday. So that'll be fun. Gareth Frey won. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Frey, that's it. Yeah, I put on Twitter, we had we had John Connor first year because we had three Johns, and now we have three Gareth. So this is Gareth Con 2011. So, <laughs> now, we it. did a, a Gallifrey 22, Catch-22 preview show last <laughs> yes, time. Did. Yes, you did. I appreciate that. It was a lot of fun to listen. <laughs> and now we have you on here, and, and you heard some of our predictions or or favorites or little highlights but i know you may be a bit biased being the guy behind gallifrey but what's your highlights over the course of the weekend what's the things that that you hope people will take away well you know as a matter of fact today when we had talked about doing this a couple days ago and i um i put together a little list of a couple things because as much as i loved your your gallifrey preview and don't get me wrong i loved it and i had a really good time and i i really especially give a shout out to my friend josh friedman who uh who just always makes me laugh when he does this <laughs> you know josh tries to come off as this uber cool filmmaker in hollywood which he is but you know i mean he's still that guy that i've known for 22 years that uber nerd just about as nerdy as i was when i was that age um so i love josh but you know i mean it's not just a drinking fest i mean i don't want people to get that impression because it it can be but it's not just yeah, so i put a, a couple of things together that i want to talk about you also, I mean, it's probably on your list, but just to make a mention that, because uh, we failed to make a mention last time, that there's actually programming for children. If you're bringing your kids, there's, um, it's a very family oriented show. It's not, I know we paint a sort of a different picture as an adult show, but it's not. <laughs> it's not just yeah, that. Yeah, you know, I, it was funny because you did go over, which I'm very proud of, you went over a lot of the, um, the adult themed panels. We do late night panel events that we call 18 and over just because we want people to understand that they can, you know, they can talk about mature topics. It's mm-hmm. not, that sort of it's not adult entertainment yeah it's not i didn't mean it that way yeah yeah but but we also have a children's room that's open all day long that people can go up to um uh, their older children not the really young ones but the older children they can leave there they do crafts they do uh, they've built tardises out of styrofoam in the past they've done all sorts of things because the people that run it are actually credentialed teachers and and uh it's free to everybody who comes to the convention and people really enjoy it because so, we do get that question sometimes, you know, for new people coming to the convention, like, well, can I bring my son or can I bring my daughter? And, you know, and we say yes, you know, definitely, you know, it's absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because um, up until 2005, our convention every year sort of skewed older because it was the same people getting one year older and one mm-hmm. year older. one year older. Since the shows come back, our convention average, I would say the average age has really started to go down. And the reason why is because there are so many younger fans who are coming in, not just from Doctor Who, but um, especially from Torchwood. 
you know, they're bringing new people. And we have an anime convention here in L.A. about a month before Anime Los Angeles. And we get so many people from Anime L.A. every year now who have just found out about the convention and they found out about the costuming. And they come because they're huge Doctor Who fans or they're huge Torchwood fans, and especially Torchwood fans. And, and they come here and they're experiencing it for the first time. So we've really got a lot of young people. We have a lot of under-18s. You know, we have, you know, teens and tweens that we actually have a separate registration rate, a smaller registration rate, because there's a lot of things that they can enjoy. And, you know, they don't have to go to panels. They can just hang out at the at the convention, but there's a lot for them to do. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. So you're giving us your highlights, your list. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to mention one thing. You know, we, every year our, our kind of pride and joy that we have is an event on Sunday, and it's a Bob May Memorial Charity Auction, which you mentioned in your uh in your um, mm-hmm. pre last week, I want to give a shout out again to it because, of course, it's uh, it's our annual charity auction. We've raised almost a hundred thousand dollars over the years for different charities, and you know, like last year we did Haiti Relief. A couple years ago, we did the American Heart Association because we had lost Craig Hinton, the former Doctor Who writer, to, to uh, heart issues. So we we've, we've always tried to be topical, and this year, because we had one of our committee members pass away. Um, he was a, a huge pet lover, so we decided to go with an animal charity. So we're actually doing our charity auction this year for a local shelter called the Pet Orphans of Southern California, and um, they're really excited to have us. That is going on all basically all day Sunday, and we've got like 16 boxes already of, of material to auction off. There's a ton of stuff that is coming in, a lot of great merchandise that we want to auction off. So. So that's something we're really excited about, but we're also, for the first time, having a blood drive. And we've not really done this to this degree before, but Saturday afternoon, like basically all day, we're running a blood drive with the American Red Cross, and people can come in and donate blood and help a worthy cause. So we're trying to do our part. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic to, because you have a gathering of people, and, and there's always such good feelings at, at Gallifrey. It's, you know, it's, it's so laid back, and people... There's, there's a, a warmth to the convention that I don't find in a lot of other conventions. So when you have something positive like that, hopefully it inspires people. And, you know, Bob May was fantastic, and, and, it's, yeah. and you named the, the auction after him in his honor. And, and it's a great way of supporting a, a good cause, but also just some, some fun, you know, because the, it's all Doctor Who stuff. And so many people go out of their way to do something really cool whether it be donate something or, or autograph things or you never know you could as a fan you could just go and and score something really cool and you know that your money is not you know going to ebay or something it's going exactly. to a good cause exactly but you know i mean but but beyond the charity stuff beyond the libations the adult libations <laughs> which there's quite a bit i i understand um I've, those people may not want to donate blood because the alcohol <laughs> levels might be too high in their blood there you go yeah i think we need to put a warning sign up don't we but we actually do surprisingly have doctor who programming every day now i i, I say that tongue-in-cheek because of course probably a lot of people have checked out our schedule but we do have quite a number of things that are going on and I, I, I actually made a list of a couple of things I thought would be fun for people on Friday at 5 30 uh, we're interviewing Tracy Simpson Tracy started as the production manager of the show and produced season five which the last season that, with Matt Smith I mean we a couple years ago we had Phil Collinson who was responsible for the day-to-day production of Doctor Who for years Tracy is probably a name that people don't know, although I'm hoping at the end that everybody will know who she is. She has been involved with Doctor Who since basically it came back in 2005. 
you know, Russell T. Davies himself is actually quoted as saying that he couldn't have made this show without her. She's just been so integral to this show. So I'm sure she's going to have a ton of stories. You know, she worked mm-hmm. with Chris Eccleston, with David Tennant, with Matt Smith, John Barrowman. I mean, tons of people that, that, that she's worked with. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And Gary Russell, who is a very good friend of hers, is going to interview her on Friday. She's also participating in a roundtable that we've got on Saturday at noon called 21st Century Doctor Who with uh, herself, with Paul Casey, who's, you know, been about 40, I think, different different um, alien characters in the show, with Gareth Roberts, who's written for it, Gareth Skelding, who's the location manager, Neil Gorton and Rob Mayer, who are basically the people that do all the prosthetics and makeup. Speaking of Neil and Rob, 4 o'clock Saturday is going to be, I think, the panel that people don't want to miss. They're actually going to be doing, they're the, they're the guys that run Millennium Effects, which is basically all of the creature and prosthetic makeup effects for Doctor Who for the last five years. And they're actually doing a slideshow and a live demo of their work. And I'm not going to say too much more about it because it's going to be a surprise, but something is going to happen on stage that they're actually going to make somebody up into something. And it's going to be, it's just going to be kick-ass. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So so you get, you, you get, somebody is going to walk off that stage as, uh, as if you were in the show itself. That's correct. That's correct. You know, on Sunday, actually, uh, we have Phil Ford and James Moran, and they're joined by Sarah Douglas and Gary Russell. They're going to do a, a whole thing and a demo of the Doctor Who adventure games that are on BBC Online. So uh, they're actually bringing some some demo stuff, and they're bringing some some behind the scenes video and all sorts of things to do that. And that'll be Sunday at three thirty. If you're if you're still in the room after that wonderful Podshock event that's happening <laughs> at two o'clock on Sunday, which of course is the big highlight of the weekend. You know, I'm well naturally excited about Podshock. You know, that's always awesome <laughs> with you and your your incredibly awesome special guests, which of course I know about and uh, can say that they're actually both really really cool. Yeah, and, and some of the guests that you mentioned as well with, with Tracy Simpson joining us on the show uh, and, and Carol Casey Robertson. as well. And, and you've given us a, a, an interesting and, and very eclectic group of guests for the live show, which we're very pleased about because it, it, it runs the spectrum of the show. We have uh, Tracy Simpson, who's a producer, but also actors and actors yeah. both in, cost, uh, in masks and, and, and out of it. A drop of Blake Seven thrown in for good measure, and, and like you said, a couple of surprises. So, well, and one thing you know, I have to explain to people is that when we contract with our guests, we contract them to for, to basically appear once during the day. So, you know, we have to figure out how best to to maximize their appearances and so forth. So, I was really pleased that the guests that we actually have that are going to be on Podcheck, I was I was really pleased that they were able to do it. We have a few other ones that are going to, as you know, tape with uh, Radio Free Scarrow um, on Friday as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think. I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. There's so much going on. I, I just, I don't know. I think we have four actual four tracks of programming, and then we have costume programming, and we have coffee clatches. So if you technically look at it, we have six tracks plus our special events. I, I it's unreal this year. Mm-hmm. Way too much stuff going on. Now you said that there's there's a few a few things that are a little bit different. Now you have the entire convention floor this year. Yeah. So how does that affect? As an example, registration. Here I am. I'm coming down the escalator that I've been coming down for many years, whether it be me for a few years or or people have been there for decades now. They're they're coming down the escalator, and normally they're making the left and walking all the way down. What happens this time? Their registration's right there when they walk down. Um, it's the same place, the member services desk, I think it's called? No, that's actually, that's oh. over where, where, you, where registration used to be. Registration's oh, oh so it did right move. Okay. The escalator, yeah. 
And um, we are the entire ground floor, so we've been able to expand our main ballroom. We were able to put one of the, the big problem we had last year, and it was unfortunate, but unavoidable was we had to put our dealer's room into basically two smaller rooms. We don't have to do that anymore, which is really nice. Then we have a whole bunch of different things. Autographs are back on the main floor with everything else. They're not up in the hotel. The photo sessions are back on the main floor, not up in the hotel. So you really can go to pretty much everything except for the children's room and except for the hospitality suite, um, which is our, our con suite for people that are familiar with conventions. Other than those two items, everything is right there, and it's gonna. I think it's gonna be really nice because it keeps everybody together. It doesn't spread people out over the over the hotel. Also, you're saving people a little bit of time if they're online for a photo or something and they want to catch a panel. They're only seconds away. By you know, once they leave, they can move over to a to a hall if need be, as opposed to you know, making their way back down to the convention space. Sure. You it it probably will take you about thirty seconds to walk between rooms. Absolutely, no. It's um. How big it, is the main room this year? I think it seats eleven hundred people. Wow. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a big room, and we're we have we're going in with I believe the number is thirteen fifty five, which is the amount of pre registered attendees, which does include our guests. But we've always included guests in the count, thirteen fifty five, which is larger by quite a bit than our entire membership two years ago. So we're expecting a, a big year, but, you know, you never know. Of course. I, I think you're going to uh, – I say this every year. I think you're all just going to be blown away by the time it happens because it, the convention has a wonderful history, but it's really gained so much momentum with the new fans coming in and, and yeah. just the, the reputation of it. I mean, everybody who goes, once you go for the first time, you're, you're hooked. I mean, yeah. people, people regret missing – the convention if they have to skip it for some reason like you get people who are genuinely angry that fill in the blank kept them from going to galley this year yeah exactly you know i mean it's it's never i people make a big deal about numbers and so forth uh, you know i have my my annual visit with ken deep is like you're gonna hit 2000 you're gonna hit 2000 that's always fun <laughs> but, that's you know, but but seriously it's not it's not about the numbers it's not about the number of people that come in it's not really about the, the promotion and so forth what it's really about is that we spent a very long time as relatively small convention and for us it's always been about expanding it so that we could do more at the event it wasn't expanding it for any sort of egotistical reason we wanted we wanted to have 1500 people because we'd like to have four tracks of programming because we like doing that sort of thing we like to have big finish paying attention to us and we like to have telus publishing and hearst publishing and Podshock and radio free scaro and you know all these groups that can come and actually do their their stuff and one of the things that we've really noticed over the last couple of years is that there are, I, I was telling Ken and Lewis before we started here that I've been involved in mainstream science fiction fandom in LA for quite a while, um, more so 10, 15 years ago than now, but there were a lot of people that, you know, to whom Doctor Who was not necessarily something that they were ever interested in or coming to a Doctor Who convention was not something they wanted to do. We have professionals now that are coming to the convention because they're fans. And they're doing stuff for us. And, and the people I can think of, Marv Wolfman, obviously a, a legend in comics, is a huge Doctor Who fan. Barbara Hamley, the science fiction and fantasy novelist who's been around writing for, you know, 30 years, is a Doctor mm -hmm. Who fan. And these are people that are coming. You know, Javi Griot Markswatch, who is a, a big name in, in television, you know, he worked on Lost and, and Medium and The Middleman. He comes every year. His friend Jose Molina, who is 
he's a producer on a show called Haven on Sci-Fi, but he's written for Firefly and Dark Angel and produced other shows for them and so forth. Worked with Joss Whedon a while. He's a Doctor Who fan, so he's coming to the convention. These are people that are really interested in the subject matter. So the fact that the convention has grown, which means that we're bringing more of these professionals in who not only are going to talk about their craft, but who are sharing the convention experience with with everybody if that makes any sense it's it's one of the benefits i think of being in la though i mean you wouldn't see that not not to knock any other con but if you're in even a big city like atlanta georgia or or something like that you might not get those professionals because it's hollywood you guys exactly people get together for Doctor Who and that's the one thing that I can say about Gallifrey that's a little bit different is that we get together for Doctor Who but we've always had other things that people are interested in other television shows you know Babylon 5 or Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica or, or whatnot and we get a lot of guests from from different shows for that reason because we're in LA mm-hmm. yeah, well Bob May himself was uh, mostly known playing the robot in Lost in Space absolutely so, absolutely and, and, and he's and a so staple of the convention Gallifrey you know that's yeah, yeah, I mean, he Bob May, that was the thing. He um I mean, he Bob May was admittedly somebody who went to a lot of conventions. And he, you know, he was a huckster. He was the kind of person who would go, you know, to a dealer's room and and sell his wares and have a good time and talk to people. But, you know, he also made a living doing this. But but Gallifrey was very special to him and he, you know, he always looked forward to it every year and he would always call us and say when is Gallifrey next year and he wanted to come and he he ran the auction. I mean, he basically was up there auctioning off material for 10 years before he passed away. And um, we still have a, a really great relationship with his daughter, Deborah, who comes to Gallifrey every year now for the, the Bob May auction. So the, the whole family is really, really honored and flattered to have this named after him. And I'm really pleased that we can keep Bob's memory alive that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, you know, it's it's funny because I think sometimes if people who, who might listen to the show would think that that I gush about Galley because it's a Doctor Who convention, but I can say I've been to all types of conventions and even non-science fiction things. You go to we've gone to trade shows or things like that sure. for, for career reasons. And there's a there's an inclusion, there's a good feeling, a good vibe to Gallifrey that I've never experienced in in any other convention and that's really why I gush about it. It's it's great that it's Doctor Who, it's the subject I'm feel most passionate about. But beyond that, and what you're saying, as exemplified by Bob May, here was a man who wasn't involved in Doctor Who. He was in a different sci-fi franchise, but he made it his thing because it was just it's just a great con with good feelings and people who get together. You hit the nail yeah. right on the head by saying we have a lot of other interest, other interests, and and I've met people at Galley who are in either in the same line of work or things like that. And you just, Doctor Who's the common thread that is really bringing us together, but that's not always necessarily the topic of conversation. Exactly. But but everybody gets the in-jokes if you were talking about, oh, tractators or something like that, and everybody laughs because we all know the joke. Right. Well, you you know, it's I've never really... Everybody knows what the marker is. Yeah, I've never really understood it, but, you know, it would be disingenuous for me to say that that the reason for the ambience of Gallifrey is because of the convention, because it's not. I mean, we do what we do. I do what I do. The convention does what the convention does. But at the end of the day, it's about the people that come. And there's so many people that come that have made have turned this into something not of our making. I, I don't know how to put it exactly. This LobbyCon thing on Thursday night, we have nothing to do with. We never had anything going on. I mean, people named it LobbyCon and 
that name's kind of stuck at other conventions, but I don't think anybody's, I don't think there's a lobby con. There's only one real lobby con. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's one thing I will say. But, but other than that, I, I, we never, we never intended for that to be something that people really look forward to. And it's so popular that it really kind of started this past year on Wednesday night. So you never know. Yeah. It's, it's again, the excuse for going, of course, is Gallifrey, but, and, and, and Doctor Who, but people make, LobbyCon is a way of socializing where it's not at a panel, not discussing, you know, the pros and cons of the St. John's ambulance logo or anything like that. <laughs> it has it, it has something to do with just simply socializing uh, with people who have a common bond, and that is Doctor Who. And it's exactly. just people are relaxing and having a good time. And for many of us, me in particular, it's my vacation. So yes. I like going to LobbyCon because to me that's I don't play shuffleboard or go surfing or something like that. I hang out in the lobby and have have a beverage with some friends. Yeah, but people are still talking about how the windows in the TARDIS are too big, you know. So <laughs> I don't, you know, I, believe me, I, that's a badge of honor we actually have about that sort of thing. So I, I wanted that. to ask you because there was a little bit of of um, confusion about the hotels and the stuff like that, and there's nobody better to really kind of set everybody straight about this. What's the scoop if someone wants to make a last minute uh, arrangement and come and and needs a hotel room? What's the scenario with it right now? Well, the the sad fact is that we really don't have any more hotel rooms available, but there is plenty of other options in the immediate area. What what basically happened in a nutshell is normally we sell out the convention every year, but it's really easy to get a very good rate anyway because you can do AAA, you can go to Expedia or Travelocity or Orbitz or whatever, and you can always get a really good rate into our hotel. That's not happening this year because the NBA 2011 All-Star Game is in Los Angeles the same weekend. So basically, in a nutshell, all the hotels in the area, all the big hotels, jacked up their prices to a, a very large rate. So we don't have that luxury. We did survive for about four months with a very, very good rate across the street at the Crown Plaza, which unfortunately is now sold out. But there are still options in the area. There's still there's a travel uh, travel lodge down the street. There's a Super 8 motel. There's all sorts of little hotels in the area that are about five minutes away that are actually very, very good rates. You could actually even get less than the convention rate, which was $100. Between that rate and a taxi, a five-minute taxi ride, you're still going to save money. So there really is, I think, no excuse to say, oh, well, I can't go to Gallifrey because there's no hoteling in the area. You won't probably be able to stay in the in the hotel that the convention is at. That That much is certain. But there's tons of opportunities, and all you basically have to do is get a cab. Um, you know, a five-minute cab ride will run you about 7 or $8 back and forth between hotels. So the Marriott, even at the full, full yeah. price rate, is sold out? I believe there are a few hotel rooms left, but honestly, they're in the $300 price range. I would not recommend to people that they do that. Yeah. It's honestly a better option for people that want to come to get a room at, say, the Holiday Inn down the street, which is a mile away which is, I think at this point, less than $100, don't quote me, but I think it is, to get that and a, a really quick taxi ride, a five-minute taxi ride. All the hotels are still in the in the general area of the airport. They're all along Century Boulevard there. Once you actually do that, you can basically get to the, the convention within 10 minutes of leaving your hotel room, and you're there, and you don't need to go anywhere else. We've got restaurants. We've got a Starbucks in the lobby. We've got our hospitality suite. You know, there's stuff. There's stuff within walking distance to eat and so forth. I, I wouldn't recommend people spend $300 per night in a hotel room just to stay in the hotel. There's plenty of op- opportunities in the area for people to do it because we want people to come. We definitely want people to come. 
the parking as well. There's a there's a, a you just posted a thing today about parking, yeah. and I just because not everybody is flying in, and not everybody. Absolutely. Some people may be locals, so. Absolutely, we we validate for ten to ten dollars a day. That's basically no in and out privileges if you're coming in for the day. You go into the hotel, you pay ten dollars once you get validated from us, and that's for the entire day. Now, the the possibility does exist that parking will sell out, but there's, for example, right next door is the L.A. Hilton, the LAX Hilton, where I think parking is eleven dollars a day. So it's not going to be. It's not going to be detrimental. We're not talking about a lot lot of money. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who think that this is a very expensive trip. Well, airfare aside, if you get it, you can get a good, moderately priced hotel room in the area for about $100 a night, um, give or take. You can get parking for about $10 a day. There's walking distance. There's plenty of food within walking distance. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, nobody's ever had a problem with having to spend, you know, $30 on a steak dinner at a hotel because, you know, there's a Burger King around the street. There's a Denny's down the street and so forth. So we're not talking about, you know, a a very expensive trip. And I think a lot of people, especially people on the East Coast, feel that, you know, this is a tremendously pricey convention experience. And it's really not. We try to convince people of that, but, you know, sure. <laughs> to different degrees of success. Does the hotel still have the, because in past years, they always had a free shuttle service at the airport to the hotel. Does Absolutely. It, that still exists? Okay. I just wanted Absolutely. to confirm that. It is runs that every 15 minutes. Too. You know, I, it is 24 hours, but it doesn't, it runs every 15 minutes during the day. And I think you have to call it overnight. Okay. But so if you came in at like one o'clock in the morning, you have to give them a buzz. Absolutely. And the Marriott web, the Marriott number is on our website on the hotel page. If you look at that, get the number, you call them, they'll send the shuttle right over. Fantastic. Well, Sean, before we let you go, is there anything else you wanted to add? I know you, you were joining us here <laughs> and, and you, just a couple of things based on listening to our preview. If there's anything that we missed or that you wanted to cover? No, you know, I mean, it's a... I think it's going to be a really fun weekend. We have a we have a huge guest list. I, if people haven't seen it, they should check out our website. We should remind everyone. There you go. There, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> Gallifrey1.com. O-N-E. Gallifrey-O-N-E.com. We have an extraordinary guest list, I think, this year. Even lacking Sheridan Smith, like from today, even lacking our, our Torchwood guests that we lost a couple weeks ago due to filming, we still have a huge guest list. And, and they're appearing every day, um, for the most part. Most every guest is appearing every day. You know, they're doing a panel, they're doing autographs. Some of them are doing live commentaries of, of Doctor Who and Sarah Jane Adventures episodes. You know, and we have tremendous evening entertainment, too, that a lot of people, I think, sometimes don't think about when they're planning a day trip. You know, we have Friday and Saturday nights. We have events going on until well after midnight. Mm. And, uh, you know, I would encourage people to take a look and, and see what we have to offer. On on an unofficial slant, you guys usually there are occasionally some room parties that are not part of the con proper. Do you have any idea what the themes are going to be this year? Yeah, as a matter of fact, there is one in particular. We're not we're not really known as a room party convention because of the fact that we have such evening entertainment. But there's one that happens every year, and you guys were talking about it. Actually, mm-hmm. Josh, I think was talking about it. Yeah. Um, on the last episode about the uh, specific room party that happens on Friday night, which became very, very famous a couple years back when Phil Collinson ended up uh, bartending for the entire (laughs) evening. Their theme this year is called Night at the Museum, and um, it's kind of tying into the whole history and Doctor Who and all the sorts of things. And uh, they're actually participating in this uh, convention-wide game that we're doing. You know, we've had this Islands of Mystery theme for the last year, and uh, we actually announced today what that was all about. 
we're running basically what amounts to a, a collect the islands game. You go around a, and get 22 different stickers in your program book, and you can win prizes. There's a raffle and so forth. We're, they're actually participating in this. They're going to be one of the, the places that you can get one of the stickers, and uh, that's an exclusive for Podshock listeners that you wow. now know one of the answers. So there's so. there's one unofficial site that will be carrying one of the uh, the islands of mystery. Yeah, I, the people that run it are are very good friends of ours. They participate in a lot of things, and uh, and uh, it's kind of become a highlight for many people that Friday night party. There's actually two events Friday night running concurrently. There's their party, and then there's our party, which is the Islands of Mystery Pirate Invasion and Rum Party. Although there's <laughs> no rum inside the party itself, but but it's run by the same people who run our Friday night gala every year. There's going to be I know they're going to have a. Uh, uh, like a, a kind of an auction, like a uh, like a pirate auction or something like that, and they're going to have gaming and like Monte Carlo gaming and all sorts of things. They're playing a really fun evening. Now, I I stocked up on Hawaiian and tropical themed shirts. I hope that was the right thing to do. As a matter of fact, <laughs> as a matter of fact, we're announcing tomorrow. By the time people hear this, it'll be announced that Friday is going to be Hawaiian Shirt Day. And we're encouraging everybody to wear Hawaiian shirts. We have lays that we're giving as people come in um, up to a certain number. I think we have like 500 of them. So you're going to see when you walk into the main ballroom, it's going to be very islandy decorated and so forth. We're going with this whole tropical theme on Friday. And then we're encouraging people to wear Doctor Who and Torchwood Hall costumes on Saturday for another reason, which I'm not going to talk about right now. But it'll be a lot of fun. People will right. enjoy that part on Saturday as well. Well, for our, our meet and greet on Thursday night, we better do a seance and invite John Nathan Turner over so that he can join <laughs> in on Friday. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, we will we will encourage some some tropical themed uh, attire on the Thursday unofficial meet and greet. I have I ha- I printed up um, one of the traditions at Gallifrey are the ribbons that that people make up on an honor. Oh nature. yes, and <laughs> the ribbon nightmare of Gallifrey one. I made ribbons just for the Thursday night meet and greet, even though most people won't have their badges. If you if you see me at the meet and greet, ask me for a ribbon. I'll have a ribbon just for people who who um, who had uh, partook in the. Spectrox Toxemia. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> trying to come up with a beverage, a, a name for a drink. Oh, okay. Well, no, that's fine. We actually have, the convention has a, um, you know, we have an annual drink Friday, Saturday, well, Friday and Saturday night at our cash bar that I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's a very islandy theme too. It just reminded oh, me Oh, okay. But, you know, the ribbons thing, I tell you, Okay, ribbons are, are kind of a, a thing with at LA conventions that they have been for a while at Worldcon and Westercon and so forth, and they've kind of taken on a life of their own, and I think it's entirely due to Tommy Knight last year, who decided to make a kilt out of his ribbons, and I think he had I think he told me he had eighty-three is what he counted on his in his kilt. I guarantee you there's gonna be about a hundred and fifty yeah. to two hundred <laughs> this year. Different ribbons, and these are just fun things and people are actually buying these and if you get them in bulk you're you're looking at spending 50 to 100 dollars on this mm-hmm. but people really love to give ribbons and and i just can't wait to watch people put them on their badge and drape them down all the way and start <laughs> tripping on them in the middle of the hall that'll be a lot of fun it just it just seems like so much fun when people are handing you ribbons i said this year i have to be able to hand something back so 
uh, because so many people say, oh, you have a ribbon. Take my ribbon. I have a red one. I have a blue one. But we should just explain for those few out there that may not know what we're talking about. These ribbons are attached to the badges. They have an adhesive strip, and you attach one below the other, below the other, and you gain a collection. And before you know it, you have a scarf size, you know, a Tom Baker (laughs) scarf size um, trail of ribbons ribbons going across your, you know, trailing from your badge. Yeah, you realize now that you've started something. Now someone's going to go out there and create a very, very long (laughs) Dr. Who Tom Baker scarf of ribbons and wrap it around. Oh, the nightmares. The things that that this that this tradition demonstrates is this is something that just grew out of what people like to do mm-hmm. for fun. This was not a, a planned thing. It just happens. And, and everybody wants to jump aboard because it's just a good time. And, and there's a saying on each ribbon. It's a, a printed text yes. on each ribbon. And then uh, sometimes there's artwork too. And there's, uh, I saw some artwork last year. Somebody made their own. They silk screened them yeah, with, well, with the characters from the show. That was ridiculous. It was so incredible and so much effort and love put into those ribbons absolutely absolutely i actually have one too but it's for the it's for the game it's when you when you get 11 stickers which is half of them you get entered into our raffle and when you get all 22 you get a second entry into the raffle and you also get a ribbon and i can't remember it's the islands of mystery collector or something like that with the logo on it but uh (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we add our own. And we've got, like, seven or eight convention ribbons as well. But, you know, this has just taken on a complete life of its own. It's crazy. To me, it's just part of the fun of everything Absolutely. that you do, Sean. You and, and everybody behind the scenes, because you're the you're the main guy. You're the person people think of when they think of Gallifrey. But there are so many people behind the scenes who donate their time and their efforts and, they, and, and do so voluntarily just because – they enjoy oh, yeah. it and, and want to see the convention be the best it can be. Absolutely. You know, I tell people, and they don't realize it, but there are all the people that run our convention, all the people that work on it are all volunteers. They all pay for their memberships, to the, their registrations to the convention. People don't get in for free. And they, they buy their own hotel room nights so that they can stay in the hotel during the event. And I've actually got staff this year that couldn't get into our hotel because we sold out and they didn't do it ahead of time. So they're at the Crown Plaza across the street. So it's a labor of love, let me tell you. After... The convention starts to wind down. It's late on Sunday. You have usually you put memberships on sale for the following year. And last year at the Podchuck Live show, I held my receipt up to show everybody it's a good idea to buy early. First off, economically, you you save a couple of bucks. But for you as a convention organizer, you now have an idea of you have a budget to start working with and you Absolutely. have an idea about how many people are coming. Exactly. You know, it's 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 a it's a sacrifice because it's considerably lower to actually buy it. If you buy it, I think if you buy it at this year's convention for 2012, you will save thirty five dollars between the course of, of the entire year. You actually because the prices are going to be going up, unfortunately, for 2012. We just we can't afford the what we're doing now. So it's but it's we're talking about ten dollars, I think, is what we're raising it. But you're still going to save about thirty five dollars if you buy it at the convention versus waiting for the following year's convention. You know, it's how can you possibly beat that sort of thing? It's incredibly economical. And then we get the money ahead of time, which we can then budget and we know exactly how much we can spend based upon trends. And our treasurer puts together a model of how much we think we're going to get and so forth. And that's how we budget getting all of our guests over. And people sometimes forget that 
guests cost money. And mm-hmm. These are not people doing this out of the kindness of their heart. This is a job for them as well. And, you know, we need to pay for people coming over and we have to pay for air and hotel and all this sort of things. So that's where everybody's money goes to. We don't make a dime. None of us make a dime. We usually lose our shirts. Following. And, well, just, just a comment about advanced tickets for those that aren't sure if they're going to be there next year to go to the convention. And they, st- I always say, well, think of it if you, you know, you're not sure, always think of it just as a donation. Then if you don't go and if you go, then you got a great discount. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Following the convention for me, the national holiday is when you say, okay, the Gallifrey code now works at the Marriott website. To me, whatever day that is, it's usually like the start of summer or sometime, you know, in the warm weather. And although the convention's months away, to me, that's like a holiday. That's like tickets going on sale for a concert six months from now. <laughs> you know you're going to see the show. Just go buy the damn tickets. Uh, you're crazy, Ken. No, it's, I, I, it's, all, I, I, it's <laughs> all good. You know, we're, gonna, we're still trying to figure out how we're going to handle that because we don't. We know that there are a finite number of hotel rooms and there's going to be a competition for them. So what we're trying to do is figure out how we can best take care of people. We've been working nonstop to get people taken care of into the hotel, to get people a hotel across the street, you know, people that that were not able to attend this convention after all and had a hotel room night have contacted us and we've tried to give it to people that we know that need a hotel room and so forth. We want everybody to be happy. And like I said, I the reason I said earlier I don't want people to spend $300 to get into this hotel when there's 100 down the street, it's purely because we want to make sure that everybody's taken care of and we don't want people to spend money unnecessarily. I mean, that's crazy. So, Well, we know you went overboard, you know, just trying to make those accommodations and putting those putting that information on the website, you know, at that time when, you know, the, the group rates went out. So. Yeah. And it kills us, too, because people think, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to attend now because the, the convention hotel is sold out. But, you know, when when we lose a guest, we announce it that day when we lost Peter Davison in two, for our 2010 convention. And let me let me stress that he is coming to 2011. I actually just talked to him yesterday and he's all set. When we lost him for 2010, we didn't wait till we had a replacement. We announced it that day because we're not going to take anybody's registration money for guests that we no longer have. I mean, it's very important to us. We consider our attendees the most important people of all. Thank you so much, Sean. We really appreciate you coming. And if there any last things that you want to mention before we wrap things up? I just want to encourage everyone to attend the Doctor Who Podshock event <laughs> Sunday at 2 o'clock in the main ballroom. It's going to be fantastic because it's going to be one of the highlights of the weekend. And seriously, you guys are, you know how I feel about you both and and James and everything you guys do. And we just really appreciate your support. You were basically the first podcast to, uh, to climb aboard, so to speak. And really, you're the ones that we, just out of the blue, you just gave us your support and your encouragement, and we really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hopefully I haven't, Bored any of your listeners to tears for the last no, time. No, I think you, I think you've answered a lot of questions. You know, in particular because the the questions I'm asking you, Sean, are questions I get from my friends, be it online or in person, that just say, "Well, what about this?" Or did you hear about this sure. yet? And so I think you've answered a lot of questions, and we feel the same about Galley. You've always made us feel very welcome, and I I think personally, it's one of those things after going to my first 19 was my first galley and i really regret missing the 18 before that's the way i feel about it yeah well you know i i'm so glad that you guys come and we just want everybody to enjoy themselves and you know people that are on the fence i would encourage you to try it i i really 
I would say in 22 years, I've not had anybody ever tell us that they had a, a bad time and not come back. You know, everybody usually says at the end of it, well, I can't wait for the next one because we, we care and we want to make sure everybody has a good time. And that's the only reason we do it. We don't do it for any other reason other than to make our... Well, our and presents. we haven't heard anything of that either. I mean, we're not... We're sort of somewhat out of the, the, the direct loop there, you know, from our listeners. Everyone that's attended always had a great time. And just being there, and I know this may sound biased now because we are somewhat involved, is that the convention has run so smoothly. Ken and I have been to countless conventions throughout decades now, and there's, I, I think both of us can say that there's nothing runs as smooth uh, as Gallifrey one. I've, I told Sean in Chicago this year and uh, I told him off the air. So he knows I wasn't BSing him. And now I'm, telling <laughs> him on the air. I told him he's, his convention is the template for how things are supposed to be done. I measure every convention. Yeah, it's spoiled every other convention now. <laughs> you know, I, I, there was one time I, we don't really, I don't like to look around for what people think about it because you know, if they, if they really want to say something, you know, our door is always open and we can, they can always email us or post something on the Facebook or on Gallifrey based forum or, or something. But, but I read one thing, the, uh, the guys from tacky on TV and, uh, what is it behind the sofa back in the UK, they came out a couple years ago and, and I just remember they said, and then you come to Gallifrey one and you see how things should be done. And it just made me feel really good that, that somebody knows that we've, we've just put all that extra effort and, and energy into it. And it's a labor of love. That's all. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, and thank yeah, you for thanks, being Sean. here. We'll see you in, in two weeks. Absolutely. Less than that. Less we'll than two weeks now. Less than that. Nine That's days. true. That's very true. It's less than two weeks now. Absolutely. And um, we'll, we'll definitely, if, if you have a moment to spare, to have a, a tasty beverage with us at LobbyCon, that'd be fantastic. Absolutely. And give James Naughton a lot of grief for not coming. I'm going to miss him this year. <laughs> oh, we will. Absolutely. All right, you guys take care. All thanks right. again. Thank you thanks, so much. Sean. Well, I think that's going to wrap things up for this episode of Doctor Who Podshock. I want to thank once again Sean Lyon for joining us, as well as Graham Burke and Robert Smith. Ken Deep isn't here for this segment. He's off at a DWNY meetup tonight. We have at least one more episode of Doctor Who Podshock coming out before Gallifrey 1. There should be one right after this episode. Also, a reminder, if you are going to Gallifrey 1 and you are a... Doctor Who Podshock supporting subscriber, please let us know about it and let us know how we can contact you at the convention just in case something comes up where we can put together a, be it a meal or get together for coffee or with perhaps maybe some of the convention guests, we can do that. This is something that we can't arrange in advance and we can't promise that anything like that would happen. But if it does, we can reach out to you and invite you and, and have you with us for such an occasion. Remember to stay up to date on Doctor Who Podshock at Gallifrey One by keeping an eye on our website, podshock.net, but even more so, follow our Twitter feeds. You can follow the show on Twitter by following at Podshock. Of course, I'll be tweeting quite a bit from it as well. You can find me on Twitter at Louis Trapani. Ken may even tweet once or twice if we're lucky. You can follow him on Twitter at Ken Deep. Unfortunately, James will not be attending this year. We didn't have the resources to bring James ourselves, and now he has other big plans for that same weekend. But we will try to bring him to the convention via the net if possible. You can follow him at James Norton. Of course, you can follow Gallifrey One on Twitter as well, at Gallifrey One. 
although we do try to retweet their convention tweets so that you can view them on our site. And in addition, on the Doctor Who Podshock podcast companion app. And it's no surprise that the Sonic News Driver will be at the convention as well. So there may be an episode coming out soon for you. Be sure to subscribe to it via iTunes or ArtTrap.com. We still have plenty of feedback to get to, and probably after Gallifrey 1, we'll have a chance to catch up on that. In the meantime, please continue to send your feedback to the Podshock Public Call Box, and you can do that by calling 206-600-6517. Once again, that number is 206-600-6517 for the Doctor Who Podshock Public Call Box. You can also email your feedback and since this is an audio podcast, if you can record an audio feedback, that would be great. You can send it to feedback at podchock.net. So thank you for listening. Once again, we'll be speaking with you soon. Cheers. You have been listening to Doctor Who Podchock, presented by the fan-run Embassy.org. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podchock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Doctor Who Pachak theme music by Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com. This has been a production of Art Trap Productions and is presented to you by the Gallifrey Embassy and has been made possible in part by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This episode is also supported by the Podshock Podcast Companion app for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch now available in the iTunes App Store. I need ginger beer! I beg your pardon? I need ginger beer!